You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Greetings and welcome to Domecast, the news and observer and NC Insider Politics Podcast. I'm Don Vaughn here with Will Doran and Colin Campbell. And this week we're talking about uh, a lot of interesting news about money and corruption and documents. And uh, um, Will, why don't you get us rolling on what the latest was, which broke uh, Thursday, which was a surprise, not a surprise. We kind of thought something was up um, and then found out it definitely was when uh, David Lewis decided that he was going to leave the house. Yeah, I think it's fair to say it was a, a huge surprise. Um, so Republican Representative David Lewis from Harnett County, um, one of the definitely most powerful people at the state legislature, uh, charged with multiple federal financial crimes on Thursday um, related to basically a campaign finance scheme that prosecutors uh, say he was running in which he set up a bank account in the name of a fake company that he called NCGOP and then was sending money. NCGOP Incorporated. Yes. NCGOP Inc. Um, And he was then taking money from his own campaign account from his political donors and claiming he was sending it to the real NCGOP, the state Republican Party, but in actuality was sending it to this bank account that he controlled in the name of this fake company, which he was then rerouting to personal use, uh, pay bills for his farm, uh, to pay his rent. Things where have like we heard that. that before, where people use campaign money to pay for something having to do with housing? The key is not well, to use a fake bank account, I think. That's the uh, difference between like Bob Hall comes after you with an ethics complaint and the feds come after you with felony charges. So there's a legal way to do things and an illegal way to do things, right? Exactly. If, you know, if you're, well, the state did recently change the rules on that. Um, And, you know, what y'all are referring to, obviously, is uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger using his political uh, campaign donations to pay for his rent on both the house he owned in Raleigh and also his law firm uh, back, back home. Uh, which he said both were being used by his political campaign for campaign purposes. So hence he could use the campaign money to pay his his personal rent on those things. Um, uh, He did that all above board back when he was doing it. He got the state board of elections to sign off, you know, review everything, tell him, yes, you are allowed to do this. And then after it kind of came to light and people started making a stink about, you know, here's a politician paying his mortgage or, you know, his office rent, using his donor's money, you know, the, the state did eventually reverse course on their rulings in that and, you know, pass a new rule just around a month ago this summer uh, saying that, no, you can't do that anymore. Um, the difference with that versus the Lewis thing is um, Lewis uh, wasn't actually charged with uh, campaign finance crimes. What he was charged with was making a false statement to the bank, which was you know, this fake company that he used uh, to put on a bank account instead of his own name to try to disguise the payments better, and then also failing to pay taxes on all of the money that uh, that he was taking. Um, That's interesting, considering that, you know, the General Assembly gets to decide where a lot of our tax money goes. 
And he, of course, is the elections chair who sets some of the policies or, or was the elections chair to set a lot of the policies related to the state board of elections. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, do we see any action by the state board of elections on the campaign finance side of this or do they effectively let the feds handle it? Um, because, yeah, I mean, the, typically the way we learn about these sort of issues where someone did something shady with campaign donor money and violated a campaign finance law in which they used it for their own personal gain is that you have a state board of elections investigation and then they present their findings to the state board of elections which then votes to forward the information to a prosecutor that's what you saw with uh, former state rep rodney moore from charlotte who was accused of essentially you know enriching himself and uh misdirecting campaign finance payments and essentially not you know not following the rules but you haven't seen that with lewis this was all kind of the first we heard of any of these um claims and uh pieces of information when this uh rolled out yesterday on uh, thursday afternoon and this all happened well you said 2018 is that right yeah 2018 was when these transactions went down in total it was sixty five thousand dollars um lewis did later pay the money back uh, there is some discrepancy. We don't quite know all the details whether he personally paid it back, which is what the federal criminal charges say, or uh, or whether he used his campaign to pay it back, which is what state campaign finance records show. Um, so we're trying to get some more clarity on that. Um, who who exactly, um, you know? Tried, tried to make it right, essentially, whether whether it was him personally or him using his campaign. Um, Feel free to contact us anytime with your tips about things like this or any other political news that you <laughs> think we need to be aware of. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, well, and you, you know- a lot of questions still, right? But I mean, there's, it's funny that like how this was 2018 and we're two years later and just now so much of this is the long game with like anything and and um speaking of long games and years ago um another big thing right this week and um was the Lindbergh sentencing and the related people sentencing um Lindbergh as i think everybody knows by this point tried to bribe insurance commissioner mike Causey um and <clears throat> Causey was not bribed and, um, you know, uh, recorded it for the FBI and everything. So this was the end result of that. But all this was from years ago. And Limber gave a lot of money to Republicans. He gave a lot of money to Democrats. And unless somebody is going to call us right now and tell us they haven't given it um, back, they haven't donated it to charity or anything like that, they kept it, um, including Dan Forrest, who is running for governor or current lieutenant governor. Um, and um, Wayne Goodwin also got um, money from Lindbergh, the former insurance commissioner who's running for insurance commissioner. Um, but, but by and large, Forrest was the biggest beneficiary of uh, Lindbergh's money. Uh, so we have put in a request with, from a reporter that doesn't even work here anymore. And, and then like Jordan, our editor followed up and I followed up. And then we asked like a list of requests and it's been 16 months. Um, for Forrest's calendar and, uh, you know, his, his schedule and uh, electronic correspondence. Um, and Forrest's lawyer, as the lieutenant, uh, lieutenant governor's office, it's, it's a small staff. There's a lot to do. We're not the only people making requests. So it, it's understandable that when you're going through thousands of pages of documents, um, if anyone is given listening to this and done a records request for 
things that like there's a there's a lot to go through. So I both understand, but also 16 months is a very long time. Um, but again, just you know, with the big news this week, things take uh, years to come out sometimes with, with documentation. So yeah. and, and as you were writing that story, there was also the um, hearing this week, a bunch of media organizations, I think, including ours, uh, that are suing the Cooper administration for various and sundry DHHS records related to coronavirus that they're trying to get. Um, and if I remember correctly from seeing uh, Nick Oxner of WBTV's reporting on the hearing, uh, the judge basically sort of, instead of ordering the immediate release of the records, he said, you know, let's have a mediation and the secretaries from the Cooper administration don't have to be there. They can send their deputies and we'll do it, you know, next month or something. So it's, it's a very long process. And as long as I've been covering state politics, it's always the governor's administration, whether it's Pat McCrory or Roy Cooper or Dan Forrest as Lieutenant governor wanting to be governor, they just don't give up the records in any sort of timely fashion. And there's always lawsuits. Um, and I guess it's just the law doesn't really have any teeth. So, you know, nobody wants to be known as the public records governor. They all have loftier goals. And so they just don't put the effort in to give people records on any sort of timely basis. And who really pays attention to public records law other than us? I mean, obviously people and politicians and lobbyists and everything and govies. You know, I talked to former Governor McCrory this week for a story that I'm working on, and, and he had mentioned about the um, our news organization wanting his uh, his calendar um, previously. So, yeah, I mean, we're coming for it. So give it to us. It's public information. You know, obviously, um, we understand logistics of everything like that. But but I do think this is, a you know, an integral part of our uh role in public service of getting this information out and they're public records. They're not press records. They're, you know, we're the ones that get it to, um, to bring to the, to the public and, and shine a light on everything. So that's, that's what we get to do. Fighting the good fight. Even when we have to fight it for years and some of us change jobs and news organizations in the process before we get what we're looking for. And sometimes we have to go to court and the court is less than helpful. <laughs> Yeah, court is when I first started uh, my reporting career. Um, I, you know, was more general assignment or, or by locality, and and I wasn't the biggest fan of covering court because I was like everything takes so long, and they just postponed it. <laughs> it's like oh, this is ridiculous. I want more action, like a city council meeting, <laughs> which does move slightly faster than the court system. It's sad when you're saying a city council meeting moves faster than something, but. <laughs> I love city council meetings, though. I don't. I don't miss. I don't miss um, the five-hour ones where people argue about rezoning. But also, it's um, it's it's a level of watching democracy in action that you you don't get as much at, at the state level. Um, but it, it's just a you know it's just a different way of seeing government. Um, state government, I think, is a lot of fun, but in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, while we're on the subject of public records, I mean, both of these scandals that we're talking about here, both the, the David Lewis thing, which is just brand new, and then the Greg Lindbergh thing, which obviously has been going on for years, but just kind of reached its, its zenith uh, this past week. Both of those revolve around, you know, campaign finance issues. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, while we obviously have some complaints about the general law here in North Carolina about public records and there's not really any pressure on officials to turn over, you know, their, their emails, their schedules, their text messages, things like that in any sort of timely manner. We do have pretty strong rules on campaign finance transparency. Um, 
and allowing the public to see and easily access that data. You know, it's not, you know, when you try to look at the, you know, some federal information, you know, it might just be all handwritten and illegible writing and a poorly scanned in, you know, PDF that you can't search. But, you know, here at the state level, it's mostly digitized. It's fairly easy for uh, people, whether they are FBI agents or reporters uh, to go through and, you know, look at some of these transactions. Obviously there's, you know, millions and millions and millions of individual transactions. So, you know, nobody can get to them all. Um, but, you know, the data is out there. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see, you know, if, if there's more to drop from all of this. Um, David Lewis well, I got- I think so, right? David Lewis got a deal with this. There's something behind it. Otherwise, you know, what's the prosecutor's, um, rationale for going easy on somebody because i think that's essentially what happened here i mean he could have been looking at like a significant amount of jail time if this had gone to to trial and he'd been convicted under these particular charges yeah just one of the charges he was facing carries a maximum of 30 years in prison um but in his plea deal that was announced on the same day that the charges were announced which is fairly rare and probably or definitely shows that you know he and his lawyer were working behind the scenes with federal prosecutors on this before they announce the charges. Um, you know, they're they're recommending no more than six months in prison and possibly just probation. So, I mean, that is a far cry from 30 years and, you know, people don't always get the max, but to your point, Colin, yeah, he could have been facing, um, you know, a very stiff penalty for this and the prosecutors are recommending very little. So it's unclear still if, that deal was in exchange for anything other than, you know, his admission. Uh, it, there were also, you know, it was unclear too if this investigation into Lewis was related at all to the Lindbergh investigation because they both happened in the in the far western district of North Carolina, which is not where Lewis lives. Um, so I know some people were a little confused, including myself, on why exactly. The charges were filed out there in Charlotte. Um, so, you know, there's still a, a ton of unanswered questions. And obviously, you know, there's the timing too with it happening, you know, just a, a day after the, the sentencing for Lindbergh and Hayes, Robin Hayes, the former GOP chairman who also um, was sentenced in the Lindbergh thing. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what else comes up. Um, but both of these cases, I, I think, are going to kind of keep echoing, not just this year, but in, you know, into the future, you know, obviously with Lindbergh, you have, you know, multiple politicians in North Carolina who were connected to him, but were not charged in his bribery trial. Uh, on right. both First, was, there is nothing, you know, and that's his criticism of, of us as why is the media, you know, tying this and, and I included that in the story. And then every time I've written about it and you know, including quoting from his own campaign website where he says like fake news Lindbergh. And um, so obviously like nobody wants to be connected to this, you know, and but so many people are when that first came out of everyone who got money from them, you know, and, and you have to decide, do you want to keep this money? Do you want to give this money back? Do you want to donate it? Do you want to say it's it's neutral? You know, like you, there are a lot of different choices for what you can do, but money is what, you need to win elections, apparently, right? 
Yeah, you're right, Don. Nobody wants to be connected to Lindbergh, but nobody wants to give back his money either. Yeah, uh, they need the money. Yeah, everybody needs it. Yeah, I mean, he's he's Danforth's biggest contributor, you know, millions of dollars, both to pro-forest packs and also Forrest himself. He's yep. a, one of the bigger donors, at least in previous years, to the statewide Democratic Party as well. He gave them hundreds of thousands of dollars. He it was pushed to Wayne Goodwin for insurance commissioner at one point. Exactly. And now Wayne Goodwin is running for insurance commissioner again. And he's going to have to answer a lot of these questions about his ties to Lindbergh, um, especially now that this is all, you know, it's no longer rumors and innuendo, um, you know, Lin Lindbergh's bribery scheme uh, with, you know, attempting to influence Goodwin's predecessor in that office. Um, so, it'll, you know, th there's going to be pressure on him to answer those questions. Um, obviously, there has been pressure on Forrest, you know, to answer the questions about his own ties with Lindbergh. But despite that, nobody has, you know, donated back any of this money to kind of disavow their Lindbergh ties. Um, I know, you know, that that has angered a lot of people, uh, particularly in the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party, who felt like they should be going more aggressively after Republicans for their ties to Lindbergh. But can't because they would be huge hypocrites if they did that, you know, when, when their own party hasn't returned the money either. Um, so, you know, that whole case is, has been, and will continue echoing through these elections since you have two candidates for major council of state offices who, you know, are, are pretty directly tied with Lindbergh. Um, and then with uh, the David Lewis case, you know, Colin, you can talk about this further, but I mean, you know, in addition to him being, you know, in charge of gerrymandering and voter ID and basically any election law changes that have happened over the legislature in the past few years. Lewis was also the House Rules Chairman, which is certainly one of the most powerful roles at the state legislature. So those are, you know, two huge roles that uh, are going to have to be filled, uh, you know, by somebody else in his absence. Uh, I think we can explain, like, what, why don't we tell people what that actually means? It's not just rules, you know, because you're yeah. like, it sounds very like procedural, but it's not. And I would actually argue that David Lewis has increased the power of this. I mean, this is essentially, to my mind, the second most powerful job in the state house, right behind House Speaker, and House Speaker appoints this position. Um, okay. So obviously, he's you know uh, Tim Moore's uh, chosen you know top deputy. But with the way the Rules co uh, Committee works, um, you can uh, stop the flow of legislation any way you want. I mean, they. they under Lewis, they've created a rule that every bill has to have a stop and an approval from the Rules Committee. And he gets to set the calendar, the agenda for the Rules Committee. So let's say you have a bill. Um, it's about a judiciary matter. It goes to the Judiciary Committee. Well, it passes the Judiciary Committee. Before it can get a floor vote from the entire House, it has to go to the Rules Committee. And if David Lewis didn't want to have the bill go to the floor, it didn't want it to pass, he could just not put it on the agenda for the rules committee. Um, so that effectively, you know, allows him to personally stop the legislation in the rules committee. He can also introduce a completely new version of the bill that happens all the time um, with, you know, some particular piece of favored legislation that needs to be on a fast track or that leadership wants to be on a fast track. Um, and I mean, when you say, I think like gatekeeping, like the gatekeepers themselves are like the most powerful because what does it matter? I mean, before in discussion, but it's all that stuff before then. You know, the committee gatekeeping is where the actual state government decisions are made and people don't always realize that or, or like that's how it's made. You know, you can introduce all the bills that you want. Doesn't mean anyone's ever going to vote on it. You know? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not, not as clear cut as it might seem on like Schoolhouse Rock or something. So, <laughs> I, I think one really good example, because you know, to to someone who's kind of unfamiliar with this process, it might seem all hypothetical. Like, oh, okay, like you know, like this guy can you know look at bills and you know decide whether or not they're going to pass. But you know, is it really up to him? But I, I think one really good example is again going back to redistricting and gerrymandering. You know, like I said, obviously Lewis was the uh, you know, really the public face of that uh, for the legislature over these past few years. He was the, the main named defendant in some of the lawsuits. Um, and earlier this year, there was, or in 2019, sorry, um, there was a bill filed to let voters decide if we wanted to amend the state constitution to try to depoliticize the whole redistricting process to kind of take politicians a little more out of it, not completely make it independent, but just make it less political than it is right now. That bill had so many sponsors from both the Democratic and Republican parties in the House that a majority of the House of Representatives had signed on as co-sponsors. It was virtually guaranteed to pass if it came up for a vote, but it never passed rules because it just sat in rules and never, you know, never got to even make it up to a vote, even though it already had the majority of people in the House signed on as co-sponsors. Yeah, so, stalled or died in the rules committee is a phrase we write a lot when we're um, uh, doing that sort of stuff. So it, it happens a lot. And then I think in addition to sort of the, the sort of procedural process stuff, the rules chairman, by being the top deputy of the speaker, is in the room on a lot of the important decisions when there's uh, last minute negotiations between the House and Senate. I mean, one example I wanted to bring up just because I think Lewis is going to go down in history as the gerrymandering guy and the guy that, you know, left office under federal corruption charges. Um, but he did, of course, a lot of other things in, in his time in the legislature. And one of the final acts he did um, that I don't think he necessarily got all that much credit for uh, in the final hours of the, the legislative session was he'd been pushing for several years, possibly multiple sessions. Um, for some reforms to something called step therapy, which is this sort of obscure insurance company thing where say you have a rare medical condition and there are three different prescription drugs your doctor prescribes, prescribed to treat them. And your doctor says, I think you should have the most expensive of those three. Well, your insurance company in a lot of cases can come back and say, you have to try the cheaper version first. And only when that doesn't work, can your doctor prescribe you the expensive medication that will then cover under your insurance. Lewis uh, has been for several years pushing to sort of change that to make it harder for the insurance companies to make those requirements, uh, make it easier for patients to go straight to the, the more expensive drug that their doctor thinks is the, the best option. Uh, that got stalled for years. Uh, the Senate just really wasn't taking um, much action on it. Um, and then during the the final like 1 a.m. hours of this year's session, that bill that was eventually in this sort of omnibus bill called Healthy NC, mysteriously appears in the conference report, um, having not had any action for days. And I, I talked to David Lewis, I think that was probably the last time I interviewed him before uh, the end of session and before all this went down. And he said, you know, this was really a priority for me. So as part of the negotiations with the Senate, we are going to pass a bill that they want, and they're going to pass this bill that we want. And so in, as a result, that step therapy bill that he pushed for three years is now a law um, and governs the insurance companies in a way the insurance companies, in some cases, didn't want to be governed. Um, Wait, they can't force the prescriptions? For what's what's that? The insurance companies can't force you to do that anymore? They can in certain circumstances. It was sort of a compromise, the way the language eventually turned out, but it, it makes it a lot harder for them to put that requirement in um, and makes it easier for a patient or doctor to be able to go straight to the, the more expensive treatment. 
Hmm. I'm just saying, cause I'm like, I think we've, some of us have experienced that where you're forced to, to change things in the insurance company. I missed that. The last time I talked to Lewis, probably that same day or the middle of the night or whatever it was about, um, you know, Freedom Park and, and if that funding was going to come through. But one thing we haven't talked about him yet, which is significant, is the um, September 11th, 2019 uh, budget veto override. And that whole thing came down between, I mean, I think we were all there or listening or saw some part of the aftermath of the that later that day or the next day or whenever it was, where uh, Lewis and Darren Jackson um, we're going back and forth about what did you tell me and if there was a vote or not. And it was really interesting. It was almost like seeing like their exchange on the house floor was like, I mean, it was, it played out in front of everybody, but it almost be their own conversation or something of, well, I thought you meant this. And like, I respect you, but I don't. And this, and sort of this back and forth of, was this confusing, you know, or not? Like, was somebody plotting something or not? And and so Lewis was a key part of that. Everybody remembers Deb Butler and Speaker Moore because of how the actual vote played out and her calling him out on that. But I thought it was, um, you know, later in the day, which was or next day or whenever it was, but uh, less drama, but more of, you know, airing like the back and forth with texts and conversations and everything and, and, and how it all played out. So yeah, I mean, this budget, you know, vote arguably happened because Darren Jackson, the Dallas Democratic leader believed that Lewis had told him there would be no votes in the, the early morning session. Lewis claims that's not what he said, right. uh, but he also, there's a text message exchange between Lewis and Laura Leslie, a reporter yeah. for WRAL in which Laura was asking, Hey, is there a vote we should show up for in the morning? And he texted back that night before. No. So um, you know, I don't think we'll ever know exactly who knew what and when and how this came down and how, who was responsible for the miscommunications there, but certainly- Or, or did they take advantage of the miscommunication, right? Yeah. Was it was it there and realizing what loophole you have? Because that's part of government too, finding out where the loopholes are and what you can do. But if you think about it, if the Senate had pulled together some sort of deal and even just held the override vote on the budget, our state government would look a lot different all because of the, you know, conversation on the floor after session between Darren Jackson and David Lewis. So Lewis has been in everything, right? It's going to be weird not to see him there in September, I think, you know? Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see the, you know, the, uh, I think it's worth noting who the, the sort of rising star power player is here. And that's state rep uh, Destin Hall, an attorney from the city of Lenore up in the foothills of the mountains. Um, he's only been in office since 20, I think first elected in 2016, fairly young guy. I think I looked up his age and I was like, Oh, he's my age. He's 33. And he's already going to be sort of the number two guy in the legislature. Uh, Speaker Moore had appointed him co-rules chairman with Lewis sort of with, this is after Lewis had announced that he wasn't going to run again. So sort of to, to phase in the new leadership. And now with Lewis completely gone, when we come back in September, um, Destin Hall has full power over the, the rules committee uh, for what it's worth for the rest of the session. And should Republicans stay in the majority uh, next year, Moore is likely the speaker again, more likely appoints, you know, Destin Hall unless he changes his mind uh, to that position if Republicans are in charge come January. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that Hall necessarily, you know, came out of total obscurity. I mean, he was, you know, also the the co-leader of the elections and redistricting committee with Lewis these past few years. So he kind of actually took that same path, you know, that, that Lewis had before him. But yeah, I mean, like you said, you know, he's 
He's in his early 30s. He's only been in the legislature about four years compared to Lewis, who had been in for nearly 20. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, if, if you're around the legislative building a lot, obviously, you know, Destin Hall. But, you know, for, you know, general members of the public, I, I don't know that he's been too much of a, a public figure. Um, and, you know, but like you said, should Republicans hold on to their majority, uh, you know, people are about to get to know him. Um, you know, he's, you know, going to be a, a very public face of a lot of things that go on in that building, and, you know, whether it's, you know, being involved in, you know, text fights with Democrats over who knew what when, or you know, just getting to kind of make the final decision on what bills do or don't get heard. Um, so, uh, he, yeah, he's, he's quickly becoming a, a person to know over there. It'd be interesting to see, like, if, I mean, if we're only in session the rest of the year for three days, if that actually does happen, or it's September 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and that's the end of it or not, you know, don't hold your breath, but um, how they're going to pack in, like, so many things into that three days that could indicate what um, what things will be like, you know, come, come 2021, depending on who's in charge, and, um, you know, politicians have long memories, um, so I <laughs> think things will come up again, you know, and so do we. And we're not going to forget it. So. All right. Well, I guess we'll be back with uh, Headliner of the Week. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. And we're back with Headliner of the Week, uh, looking back at last week's poll results. Uh, wow, this was kind of overwhelming. 90.5% um, said U.S. Post Office was their their pick for Headliner of the Week uh, with um tie for second place with only 5% each for the Judge Gale lawsuit ruling and Bernie Sanders supporters. And then my pick for Ethics Commission Twitter looks like it got zero votes. So that's <laughs> for me. So um, yeah, I forget who who said post office last week. It was Danielle. Okay, so Danielle wins. Yeah, even she was saying all week. this stuff is coming out and uh, they watch for it and that, that blew up. So all right, I don't so, remember um, what mine was, but I lost, obviously. Yeah, we were, we're all losers, so we all get to have a go this week without Danielle coming in and crush us. So, uh, Will, you want to start us off? Um, I think i got to continue the conversation and nominate public records laws. That you was know. fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Don, I got to go what first. What happens when I don't go first? <laughs> um, but yeah, we're suing the governor or haranguing the lieutenant governor or you know, digging through all the campaign finance reports and, uh, you know, there's a reason why, you know, we as a society have decided that these things need to be public and uh, politicians should actually make them public instead of fighting us over it. So that is going to be my headliner of the week. I would think if they think they're public servants then they would agree with that too, right? So. <laughs> all right, I have quickly thought of one. And I'm going to ride Danielle's post office coattails from last week. And my headliner of the week is the mailbox. 
and all the mailboxes that were taken away and may not come back. So mailbox is my headliner. Did you see Congressman Mark Walker's tweet this morning where he was making fun of, uh, I guess, Democrats for being concerned about mailboxes being taken away, in which he posted this goofy photo of himself, like pretending to like try to save an actual mailbox by standing next to it? <laughs> yeah, he was like shielding it with his body and said like, I'm taking this mailbox from Nancy Pelosi's conspiracy theories or something. Um, <laughs> You know, he, he's not even running for re-election this year. I think he's just having fun with some prop comedy. Um, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to go last. And uh, my pick is the COVID-19 tourism song. That is a thing that exists. Um, so I was uh, covering the uh, state tourism boards meeting this week, and they were talking about uh, they got, you know, millions of dollars from the legislature through federal coronavirus uh, funding to do a COVID-19 tourism campaign, a goal basically being, you know, assure people that it's safe to travel, that, you know, hotels and restaurants and other businesses where you'd go on vacation are doing the right things uh, to keep you safe um, and that, you know, doing socially distanced travel particularly close to home around the state where you don't have to fly um, is a good idea. Um, certainly Dawn and I can, can attest to that having traveled around the state. Uh, shout out this week to uh, Perquimans County in the town of Hertford where I, I briefly visited to hit up a seafood restaurant and um, buy a melon from an old man on the corner and play by the waterfront of the, the river. So uh, cool places to visit around the state uh, are, are certainly a thing. Let's give a shout out to all the the small towns, large town, uh, county manager, city managers who are listening, party chairs. We appreciate when we hear from you that uh, that we have uh, listeners beyond the uh, the dome of the 440 and 540. Yeah, we try to get out your way occasionally. It's always fun to to tour the the rest of the state a little bit. But uh, anyway, back to my my point on the uh, the tourism marketing. One of the th ads that they're running includes a song about uh, tourism and in COVID nineteen. Um, and maybe we can uh, splice in an expert excerpt of that song uh, into the podcast right here. We're open for business, but we're all in this. It takes each one of us, so your help would be a plus. Traveling, shopping, ordering a panini. Well, you can count on me and see. But yeah, it's uh, it's designed according to the tourism head uh, to be an earworm uh, and to be sort of a, a lighthearted approach. Uh, they didn't want to be too heavy handed or too serious about uh, this this marketing campaign. But apparently they're going to be putting more money into it. So if you haven't seen these ads yet, uh, you're probably going to uh, inviting you to check out a, a destination near you and uh, be socially distanced and responsible when you, you go out and travel and see places. <laughs> All right. So there you have it. Public records mailboxes, um, Corona tourism pitches. <laughs> uh, so you can vote in our headliner of the week poll once we tweet this out from under the dome. And of course we'll all retweet it and follow us on Twitter, give us your tips, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm Don Vaughn for Will Doran and Colin Campbell. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.